Welcome everyone. In this class, we're going to discuss functional incontinence, which as you recall, is incontinence caused by issues outside the urinary system. It's not a bladder problem, it's not a sphincter problem, it's another kind of problem. So we're gonna briefly review presentation and diagnosis. Our primary focus will be on management. So as we've just said, the incontinence is not because of the bladder, not because of the sphincter, but because of something outside the urinary tract that keeps me from recognizing and responding to bladder filling or keeps me from getting to the toilet in a timely manner. So bullet points two and three tell you the one, the etiologic factors that are most likely to produce functional incontinence. What if I have delirium or dementia and I can't process signals appropriately and I don't recognize that my bladder's full or maybe I have a vague sensation that my bladder's full but I can't remember what to do about it. Or what if I have severe immobility? Possibly I'm bed bound or chair bound and I can't get to the toilet in a timely manner and I don't always have assistance. You put the etiologic factors together and it's not surprising to realize that functional incontinence is very common among individuals in long-term care facilities. So as we've said, the two primary etiologic factors, cognitive impairment, either lack of awareness of the need to void, or you're kind of aware, but you don't know what to do about it. You've lost that problem-solving ability. Very commonly, we find that we have patients with severe immobility, loss of coordination, or they're just very frail and they can't get to the toilet on their own and there's not always anyone there to help them. So immobility in and of itself can cause incontinence. I could make any of you incontinent if I put you in bed, put you in traction, put an IV in your arm and took away your call bell. So what's the clinical presentation? How do we diagnose this? Well, when we do the history and physical, we're pick, going to pick up either on the fact that there's cognitive impairment, that the patient has a very hard time telling us what has happened when it's happened. Maybe it's very obvious that they are not oriented to where they are and who they are. Maybe it's more subtle than that, but when we ask them specific questions about their history, we start to realize, no, they're really not tracking and remembering. Immobility is very easy to pick up on. We're gonna see that as soon as the patient rolls in in their wheelchair or we go to see them, they're a patient in the bed and we see that they cannot get up on their own. Now, if they have cognitive impairment, their bladder charts going to reveal large volume leakage at regular intervals. Remember that the patient with cognitive impairment cannot maintain their own bladder chart. So if I want a bladder chart on a patient with cognitive impairment, as we discussed earlier, I have to involve the caregiver. I'm gonna ask the caregiver to maintain a modified bladder chart where they put the patient in absorptive products. They check them every hour and record wet or dry so that we start to get a sense of voiding intervals. Every two hours, they take the, take the patient to the bathroom. They cue them to void and they document their response. So when I look at the modified bladder chart, 
I see that sometimes the patient responds appropriately to toileting and toileting cues, hopefully. Maybe sometimes they don't. Some patients may never respond appropriately. That's very important information in selecting my management program. So if they have a caregiver who assists them to the bathroom and who cues them to void, what percentage of the time do they respond appropriately to those cues? What percentage of the time do they urinate into the toilet or into the urinal? If it's a patient with marked immobility, I can use the get up and go test to quantify the impairment in mobility. Some patients can't get up and go at all. So I want to assess, can the patient get out of bed on their own? Can they ambulate on their own? How long does it take them to move from where they spend their time to the toilet? How long does it take them to prepare to void, to get their clothing out of the way, to get positioned on the toilet? So I'm going to be able to determine a lot from very simple history and physical. Talking to the patient, watching the patient, talking to the caregivers. Now, having functional incontinence does not rule out retention. So always, as we're conducting the history and physical, we're very alert to any indicators of retention. We're alert to a history of benign prostatic hypertrophy. We're alert to a coexisting diagnosis of pelvic organ prolapse. We're aware that this patient's had very long-standing diabetes and their bladder may not contract appropriately. We're aware that this patient's in their upper 80s and they may have some of that detrusor hyperactivity but impaired contractility. We're gonna percuss from the xiphoid to the symphysis and if we pick up any indications of retention, either from the history, from the physical exam, from observing voiding, we're gonna do a post-void residual. So basically, functional incontinence is based on clinical assessment. There is no defined diagnostic test. If you want to use an objective tool to quantify, there are definitely tools for assessment of cognitive function, the mini mental status exam, the mini cog, the clock drawing test. And you see here on this slide some of the common errors on clock drawing tests. So sometimes the numbers are out of order. Many times the spatial relationships are wrong. You also always want to see if they can draw the hands of the clock to indicate a specific time you give them and if they do that correctly. To assess mobility, get up and go is the one objective measure, but many times it's as simple as saying the patient's bed bound, the patient's chair bound, the patient's unable to get up out of bed on their own. They always require assistance for toileting and then looking to determine how much assistance is available. You always rule out your reversible factors. So if they have symptomatic UTI, you're going to treat that because it makes the bladder more irritable and it frequently compromises cognitive function. If they're constipated, you're gonna do a clean out, you're gonna do a bowel program. We don't want anything further interfering with normal bladder function. If we have a postmenopausal female with atrophic urethritis, 
definitely worth a trial of topical estrogen if she's in a setting where that can be administered because that can reduce bladder irritability and the frequency of incontinent episodes. We've always already said if you have any reason at all to suspect retention, you do a post-void residual. And we talked about what you see on a modified bladder chart. If they have coexisting overactive bladder, again, you'll see that they have incontinent episodes at regular intervals, but it's going to show abnormal frequency if they have a coexisting overactive bladder and urge incontinence. So how do you manage? Well, just in discussing the common etiologic factors, you're probably sitting there thinking, well, it depends on what the causative factors are. If my causative factors are immobility, everything's going to relate to that. If my causative factors are cognitive impairment, then it's going to be the caregiver assisting the patient with toileting or use of absorptive products or both. And you're absolutely right. Management is always dictated by the specific etiologic factors, the severity, the voiding frequency, and how much assistance is available to the patient. It always comes down to three groups of interventions. Environmental modifications can be very helpful if immobility is the issue. Doesn't necessarily help with cognitive impairment. Toileting programs can be very beneficial if you have some degree of cognitive impairment, but the patient retains the ability to follow instructions and can be toileted with assistance. For almost all individuals with functional incontinence, absorbent products are indicated. So let's talk about incontinence due to immobility. Most of the time we can do a lot to make things better. Sometimes we can get a PT or an OT consult to see would this patient benefit from a walker, would the patient benefit from a cane, what else can be done. We want to make the pathway to the bathroom as short, uncluttered, and safe as possible. This is particularly important for patients who are at home. So we might need to go in and do a home assessment, identify safety obstacles, eliminate them. We want to make sure they're wearing footwear with non-skid soles because we want to minimize the risk of any falls. Also, if they have very sturdy footwear, their time to the bathroom will be reduced because they'll be able to walk just a little faster if they're not worried about falls. We've talked about walking aids. Many of these patients will benefit from elevated toilet seats. A lot of them have had hip replacements or hip surgery, and that makes it so much easier to get up and down. Pull-up pants and briefs, not things that fasten with side closures bedside commodes and urinals. So a lot we can do to reduce the distance to the toilet. For patients with mobility issues, scheduled toileting can make a phenomenal difference because what do they tell you? It takes me too long to get there. I can't get there in time. By the time I know I have to go, it's already too late. By the time I get out of bed and get, you know, up on my walker and out the door, I'm already starting to leak, okay? We're gonna change everything. 
you're not going to go to the bathroom based on urgency. You're going to go to the bathroom based on the clock. So we're going to put you on avoiding schedule. And if you know that you're going to urinate every two hours, then if you're it's time for you to urinate at 10 o'clock and it takes you 10 minutes to get to the bathroom, that's fine. At 9.50, you get up and you start to the bathroom. And then you're not fighting urgency the whole way. So if mobility is an issue, but the patient can get there, it just takes some time, schedule toileting. Absorbent products, extremely valuable because people worry, what if I leak on the way to the bathroom? Also, leakage on the way to the bathroom is a safety issue. What if they do leak and then they fall? So absorbent products may be helpful as adjunct therapy. Absorbent products become the management of choice if immobility cannot be improved and toileting is not an option. They're essential if leakage persists despite all of these interventions. So most of the time they're adjunct, but sometimes they become primary. What if the functional incontinence is due to cognitive impairment? A lot of these patients will benefit from toileting programs, and toileting programs simply involve taking the individual to the bathroom on a predetermined schedule, cueing them to void. I want you to try to urinate in the toilet now. Now, this is going to be appropriate if you have an individual who voids no more often than every two hours. In other words, their voiding interval has to be at least two hours because it's not feasible to toilet somebody more often than every two hours. So if I'm assessing my patient to see, are you a candidate for scheduled toileting? I'm gonna look at your modified bladder chart. I'm gonna to look to see how often were you wet, not dry. That's gonna tell me, are you a candidate? What if at baseline you're avoiding every hour, every time they check you, you're wet. Even though sometimes you urinate in the toilet, you're always wet at every check then I've gotta go back and I've gotta think what things could be contributing to overactive bladder and causing a reduction in bladder capacity. So did I eliminate constipation? Have I treated atrophic urethritis? Have I eliminated bladder irritants? If I've done all of those things, I've corrected all of the reversible factors and they're still voiding very frequently, it's worth a trial of anti-muscarinics or anticholinergics to reduce their frequency to a point where they can participate and benefit from a toileting program. Now, most of the toileting programs fall into one of two categories, either scheduled voiding or prompted voiding. And scheduled voiding is by far the most commonly used. So when you talk about schedule voiding, it's also known as habit training. And what you want to realize is it is the caregiver who is responsible for taking the patient to the bathroom on schedule, for cueing the patient to void. The goal is simply to reduce the number of incontinent episodes by toileting them on schedule. So let's say that at baseline, this patient has six episodes of leakage throughout the day. A 
A scheduled voiding program would be considered very successful if you cut the number of incontinent episodes in half. So it doesn't have to reduce incontinent episodes to zero to be beneficial. What we have found is that if you reduce incontinent episodes, you reduce the incidence of urinary tract infections, you reduce the risk of falls, you reduce the risk of skin breakdown. So the indications are very simple. It's a patient who can toilet with assistance. So I can get you up by myself and get you to the bathroom, or you can walk to the bathroom independently. It's not realistic to toilet somebody every two hours if it takes two caregivers to get them up. So they either have to be able to get up on their own or get up with the assistance of one individual. Also, they should have a voiding interval of at least two hours. And when I assess their modified bladder chart, I should find that they're able to respond to voiding cues most of the time. Statistically, they say 66% of the time they should be able to respond to voiding cues by urinating in the toilet or the urinal. So you're a candidate if you can get up independently or with the assistance of one, if your voiding interval is at least two hours, and if your bladder chart shows that you respond to toileting cues about two-thirds of the time. So the program itself is very simple. You can either toilet them based on a fixed schedule like every three hours, or you can create an individualized schedule based on their modified bladder chart where you try to respond to their voiding interval. In any kind of care setting, like a long-term care setting, skilled nursing facility, it is not feasible to use individualized schedules and those settings, they're going to toilet every three hours, or sometimes they toilet based on usual voiding patterns, which means when I get you up in the morning, mid-morning, early afternoon, late afternoon, and bedtime. If you're a family member caring for one individual patient, you're committed to a toileting program, then yes, for you, and for your family member, it is realistic to look at their voiding patterns and to establish a voiding schedule or a toileting schedule that matches their voiding patterns. Now, as you see, the caregiver has to be motivated to maintain the program, to maintain the program because it's up to me, the caregiver, to come, first of all, to recognize that it's time for you to toilet, to come to get you up if you need help, to assist you to the bathroom, to cue you to void. I want you to try to urinate in the toilet now. I want you to try to urinate in the urinal now. If it's a home caregiver, in other words, if it's a wife taking care of her husband or a daughter taking care of her mom or whatever, the decision as to whether or not to implement a toileting program is really up to the caregiver because all of the work is going to fall on the caregiver. So it would be up to the caregiver to say, yes, you know, let's try that, let's try that scheduled voiding program. Let's see if that helps. Or the caregiver might say, you know, 
I've got so much going on. I'm taking care of my mom, but I also have young kids. I don't really know if I can commit to that. Can you just help me find some really good pull-ups that will manage the leakage? And I'll just do that for right now. So in the home, it's up to the caregiver. In long-term care, the standard of care is any patient who can be toileted with the assistance of one person and who responds to voiding cues the majority of the time should be placed on a toileting program. So let's just summarize that. You're gonna determine the usual voiding frequency via a modified bladder chart, or you're gonna toilet based on a fixed schedule every three hours. The caregiver is going to assist the patient to the bathroom the caregiver is going to cue the patient to void. Now there is a program known as functional intervention training. This involves scheduled voiding like we've just talked about, but also musculoskeletal strengthening exercises. So this is commonly done in long-term care facilities where they toilet people on schedule, but they also have them involved in these exercise programs. And this program is based on studies that have shown positive effects on continence when strengthening exercises are combined with routine toileting for individuals with cognitive impairment. So reasonable in long-term care may not be reasonable if you're the one-on-one -on -one caregiver. There is another program, it's a higher level program, it's called prompted voiding. It's not as widely used because it requires a lot from the caregiver. But to me, it's basically toilet training for adults. In this program, the patient and the caregiver share responsibility for maintaining continence. You have higher level goals. So instead of just trying to reduce the number of incontinent episodes, you're really trying to keep the patient dry. And more than that, you're trying to increase the patient's awareness of and participation in a bladder control program. In order to participate in a prompted voiding program, the patient has to have enough cognitive function to accurately report um, continent status. So they have to be able to say, I'm wet or I'm dry. And they have to be aware enough to consciously delay voiding, ask for assistance for voiding, so you can see that it requires a much higher level of cognitive function. Here are the guidelines. You determine usual voiding frequency, but when it's time to void, you don't just take the patient to the bathroom. You go to the patient and you're like, Mary, how are you doing? Tell me, are you still dry? Last time I came and checked you and took you to the bathroom, you were dry. Are you still dry? And if the patient says, yes, I'm still dry, I'm gonna check, and then I'm gonna give verbal reinforcement and praise if she is still dry, I'm gonna be, Mary, that is great. You have been dry all day. I am so proud of you. Do you wanna to try to go to the bathroom now? And if she says, yes, I'll try to go now, I'm like, that is great. You are doing such a good job of working with me to keep you dry. So then I'm gonna walk her to the bathroom and if she's able to void, I am again going to praise her for her efforts and encourage her to let me know 
if she needs to go to the bathroom, I'm gonna say, okay, Mary, it's three o'clock. I'm coming back at six o'clock to take you to the bathroom. But remember, if you need to go before I get back, just put on your bell. See, you have much higher goals. You're trying to keep me dry. You're trying to increase my awareness, increase my involvement. And it requires more from you, the caregiver, and a lot more from me, the patient. So it requires a higher level of cognitive function. What about containment or absorptive products? This is almost always a critical element of care for patients with functional incontinence. The majority of these patients are very high risk for leakage episodes, even if they're on a toileting program, even if I'm trying to help them get there in time. If I have them on a toileting program, then I'm using absorbent products as adjunct therapy. Occasionally, I will be using absorbent products as solo therapy. When might I do that? Well, what if I have a patient with severe cognitive impairment and they do not respond to cues to void? Even if I walk them to the bathroom and tell them I want you to urinate in the toilet now, they can't do that because they can't process that any longer. Okay, then a toileting program is of no benefit for them and I need to rely on absorbent products. What if I have a patient with severe immobility and I can't get to that, I can't get that patient to the bathroom by myself. They can't go independently and it takes two people to even get them out of bed. That's not feasible. So we're going to end up using absorbent products or containment products in skincare. So we've already talked about absorbent products in our class on general principles of management but we have not yet talked about containment products. And containment products can be tremendously beneficial for very immobile patients who are bed bound and sometimes for patients with advanced cognitive impairment. So one of the most commonly used containment products is external catheters for men, also known as condom catheters. Now, you have to know, like I hear all the time, those things don't work. How many of you are thinking, those things don't work? They fall off all the time. And many times they don't work and they fall off because we're either using them for patients who are not good candidates or we're not applying them correctly. So I wanna go over the guidelines for effective use of condom catheters. And the first thing you have to know is they're intended only for men who have consistent penile protrusion of at least one inch, 24-7. So a lot of your male patients will have intermittent penile retraction. And if they have intermittent penile retraction, they are not good candidates for condom catheters because they rely on penile protrusion. So you have to select your patients appropriately. The second thing is you have to assure effective adhesion. And there's two approaches to adhesion that usually work well. One is a lot of these devices come with a barrier strip that's wrapped around the penile shaft and then you roll um, the sheath over the barrier strip. The barrier strip adheres to the penile skin and then the sheath adheres to the barrier strip and that gives you very good adhesion most of the time. 
The other approach is to get a condom catheter that is self-adhesive, so the entire interior of the sheath is coated with adhesive, so you literally just roll it on and it self-adheres. Now, here are some very important points in applying it correctly. So let's say you've assured that the patient does have penile protrusion 24-7, and you know that your system does provide good adhesion. It either has the strip plus the sheath or a self-adherent sheath. Now, the next thing is to size it correctly. One size does not fit all. So you cannot put a large condom catheter on a man with a small penis and expect good results because pleating doesn't work. And you can't take a small condom catheter and stuff a larger penis inside and not risk ischemic damage. So sizing correctly matters tremendously. All of the companies who make external catheters have free disposable sizing guides, but most people have never seen one. So look around, do you have these? Do you know where they are? Can you direct your staff nurses to them? If not, go back to your vendor and say, I am sure that you have provided these to us, but I can't find them. Can you bring me a stack? And I'm gonna liberally place them in different nursing units. Okay, so I'm gonna measure most of them are designed so you can measure very discreetly at the base of the penile shaft. Next point, make sure your skin is clean and dry. Very helpful to apply a liquid barrier film like Skin Prep No Sting or Cavalon or Sure Prep or any of those. If the male is uncircumcised, it is absolutely critical to make sure you, with, you withdraw the foreskin clean replace the foreskin and place the condom catheter with the foreskin down. Men have gotten into serious issues and to, into ischemic damage when people retracted the foreskin and then applied the condom catheter over the retracted foreskin because then you end up with a tourniquet effect. So never ever let your staff do that. And finally, you will, when you're applying the sheath, you want to leave a little gap between the end of the penis and the sheath so that you don't get any friction damage, any trauma. Now, there are some other devices for men. Um, there are a couple of companies that make a non-adhesive sheath and reservoir. And there's actually two different designs. One is a hard shell penile cup that is supported by the brief, so it fits around the base of the penis, um, puts a little pressure around the base of the penis, and then empties into a reservoir. And the other one is a soft sheath that rolls onto the penis and is secured with coband and then supported by briefs. Just like with your adhesive systems, these non-adhesive systems require at least one inch of penile protrusion consistently, 24-7. Well, what if you have a patient and he always has a little bit of protrusion, you're not sure it's a full inch, it's close, but you don't have that much shaft to use to apply your condom catheter. Well, then there are catheters known as, short, as sport sheath 
external catheters. And they're designed to adhere to a very limited penile shaft. So they typically look like the one on the top left. They don't have much of a sheath, but they are very sticky and they adhere well as long as you get a good initial seal and you have that little bit of penile protrusion. A newly available device over the last decade is a device that adheres to the glands itself. So now you don't have to have penile protrusion. You can literally apply this little hydrocolloid to the glands then it has a little um, securing sheath that wraps around and it connects to a drainage bag or pouch. So the next to bottom illustration shows you that. You can see the little hydrocolloid flower that literally adheres to the glands itself and then it attaches to the drainage bag or to a pouch. That can be very effective um, it's very skin friendly because it's a hydrocolloid and it does not require protrusion. You can also use a one-piece or a two-piece ostomy pouching system. We don't like to do that because it actually adheres to the skin um, at the base of the penis and requires you to shave and is very uncomfortable when the hair grows out. So we don't use that as much, but it is out there. What about for women? Well, at the very bottom of the screen, you see the blue and white device that is known as PureWick. And currently, it is the one device that's available to provide external containment for urine in women who are incontinent. Women are very hard because of the anatomy. It's just hard to come up with a device that will collect urine. So the way this device is constructed is, if you look at the white component, that is a very porous section, so the urine passes through that. And then you see that it's connected to a stem, and the stem connects to suction tubing. So this is designed to connect to wall suction. And what it does is, as the woman voids, it passes through that you know, white material and is pulled out of the tubing and into the canister. Now, obviously, accurate placement is essential. So the white portion of the PureWick device is designed to fit right on top of the urethral meatus so that when the woman voids, the urine goes through that material and into the suction tubing. So it should be positioned securely between the labia. The tip should be right at the gluteal cleft. Well, what if none of those work? So I've tried the PureWick, it's not working. I've tried condom catheters for my male, device, male patient, it's not working. I can't get that one that adheres to the glands itself. It's not available in my setting. What else can I do? I can go back to absorbent products and skincare as we discussed in the class on general principles. So in summary, Functional incontinence is not a bladder problem, it's not a sphincter problem. It's caused by factors outside the urinary tract, most commonly cognitive impairment or severe immobility. Most patients present with moderate to high volume leakage at regular intervals. If they're cognitively impaired, they're probably not aware of the need to void. If the issue is immobility, they are usually aware of the need to void. 
So history and physical is what usually alerts you that this is functional incontinence. But you always do a urinalysis to rule out hematuria, glucosuria, and infection. You do a post-void residual if you have any reason at all to suspect retention. You always rule out your reversible factors or address your reversible factors. The two most common etiologic factors, cognitive impairment and mobility. How do you quantify those issues? There are many tools out there that you can use to do cognitive assessment. The most commonly used is the mini mental status, the mini cog or the clock drawing test. For mobility assessment, you can simply document whether or not the patient can get up independently, whether they require one person assist or two person assist. If the patient can get up on his or her own, but it takes them a long time to get to the toilet and ready to void, you can use the get up and go test. Management is based on the etiologic factors. So if it's mobility issues, it comes down to environmental modifications. What about a bedside commode? What about a urinal? What about schedule voiding so that they're not in a hurry to get to the bathroom? If it's cognitive impairment and the patient can still respond to cues to void, you put them on a toileting program. And remember that absorbent products and skincare can be used as adjunct therapy for people who are on toileting programs, who are trying to void on schedule, for people who are so immobile they cannot get up, for patients who have severe cognitive impairment and cannot participate in a toileting program, then absorbent products or containment products and skincare become the primary management approach. That's it for functional incontinence. Thank you very much.